Welcome to Practical Christian Living. If we have this prophecy that tells us the Messiah is going to be there in the early 30s in the first century, who else is a candidate? What other candidate do we have? This is a Jewish prophecy. What other candidate do we have in Israel in those three years for the Messiah? It's incredible evidence for us. It's reasonable evidence for us that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. Today, we are looking at prophetic evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Old Testament scripture foretold when he would come and how he would come. But the Jews of Jesus' day were expecting a different type of king, not the type of king who would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Today, we're looking at the very first Palm Sunday, and we have more in part two of our teaching out of Luke chapter 19. Here's Robert Furrow. When I first became a Christian, I heard that Jesus had fulfilled 350 prophecies. But when you go and you start looking up those prophecies, have you guys had this experience? I'm just wondering. You look them up and you kind of begin to read through them and you go, eh, some of these are sketchy. Some of these don't look like they're that clearly a fulfillment. And that's because you've got to know the language sometimes. You've got to know the nuances sometimes. You've got to know the culture sometimes. You've got to know that some prophecies have double fulfillment. There's a partial fulfillment and then a complete fulfillment in Jesus. And you know that when you see that there's a, a partial fulfillment, but certain key parts are left out. And then Jesus becomes the complete fulfillment of that. So you've got to know that. So there are certain prophecies that stand on their own. And I am dedicated to never just saying again, Jesus fulfilled 350 prophecies. I want to talk about individual prophecies and I want to talk about the nuances of those prophecies so that you will be able to know what they are, so that you won't go and read a list and go, what was Robert talking about? I don't think it's a good thing that we just throw out a list like that and expect people to be able to, to connect the dots. Because when people go and read it, they just go, uh, I guess they know what they're talking about. Or either they're whack. They are legitimate. There's some of them that you have to go, this looks like a prophecy. That's why I don't want to throw around that, you know, 350 number anymore. But here in Zechariah 9.9, it's a prophecy, no doubt. And there are a few dozen of them that are prophecies, even if you don't understand Hebrew, you don't understand the nuances, you don't understand the culture. There's still these prophecies that stand out as prophecies. This is one of them. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. This is a prophecy that this king coming to them was a just individual and he was having salvation. Why was Jesus going to Jerusalem on the Passover week? To die for our sins, to give us salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt of the foal of a donkey. Sometimes kings rode donkeys into cities because he wanted to send a signal that they were bringing peace and not war. Jesus rode on the colt of a donkey. He went one step lower to show an even greater contrast. The second prophecy that is being fulfilled here is really a prophecy that is fulfilled during the entire ministry of Jesus. Jesus began his ministry sometime in the early 30s, probably around 30 AD in, in the first century, to somewhere around 33. He may have been crucified in 32. He may have started his ministry in 29. He may have started his ministry a little later. The reason we don't know for sure 
is because of the year zero. Do you count it? Don't you count it? When do you start counting? And so, you know, you just kind of get this. And how good were they at backing up to the actual birth of Jesus when they did this? And there's some evidence that they weren't really good when people finally decided to start saying, let's divide history by the birth of Jesus. There's evidence that they didn't pick a good date. Shocking that people would make mistakes like that. But they did. So finding the exact date is, is hard. However, there's this amazing prophecy in the book of Daniel where we have the time frame for the Messiah. It says from a certain point until the Messiah will be this many years. And it's amazing. It's an amazing prophecy. Let me give you just a little bit of background about this prophecy. It's in Daniel chapter 9. It starts in verse 24. We're going to go through 27. And Daniel is considering the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet who was around when Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians. Daniel is a prophet during the entire time of the Babylonian captivity. Near the end of his life, he begins to look at Jeremiah's prophecies and he realizes Jeremiah says, you guys are going to be in captivity for 70 years and then you're going to be brought back into the land. And so he begins to pray. God, let this happen. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Because there were a lot of different reasons they were taken captive. But as far as the length of time they would be captive, 70 years, it was connected to the fact that they did not give the land its proper rest. See, in the law, there was not only weeks of days. You work six days, you take one day rest. And this is very important to follow. But there was weeks of years. You worked the land for six years and you gave the land one year off. This, we know, is extremely important. You have to rest land or you've got to replace the nutrients or you've got to cross, you know, do cross crops. We understand that now. So God wanted the land to have a year off. And in order to do that, you had to have faith. So as a farmer, if you had your land and you worked it for six years and you're thinking, I don't think I'm going to make it through the whole year. I'm not going to be able to feed my family. So what they did for 490 years is they didn't give the land the Sabbath year off for 490 years. And so God said, you owe the land 70 years. And so you will be taken out of the land. As I said, there's other reasons why they were taken out. But as far as the duration goes, it's because they didn't give the land 70 years of rest during 490 weeks of years. All right. That's the context of this. Because when you start using weeks of years as a calculation point for this prophecy, people think you're playing fast and loose. You know, it's not weeks and, you know, it's weeks of years. Oh, yeah, you just came up with that. No, it's the context. Go and read it in context. He's talking about weeks of years. They had weeks of years. They weren't giving it yearly rest, so they're 70 years in there. That's the context. It's in Daniel chapter 9, the first few verses. I went on to YouTube to see if I could find the descents to this um, prophecy because there's always the guys out there. But I couldn't find any. I was really surprised. In fact, I found one guy who was Jewish who said that this should be weeks of days and not weeks of years. And he tried to give some kind of fulfillment and it was not very compelling. Let's be honest with you. And I encourage you to do that. Go and look and see what people are saying. We want to believe the truth. We want to know what it says. And I always want to be able to cover the things that you might run in there, the objections that people might bring up. 
It's interesting to me, I couldn't find any. But this is in the text that these 70 weeks are weeks of years. 70 weeks of years equals 490 years. Is my math right? Okay, good. All right, so it says in Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for the holy city. So 490 years are determined for Israel, the people of Israel, and for the holy city. And here's what's going to happen in these 490 years. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, all of it's going to be fulfilled, and to anoint the most holy. That's all finality. That's all end of the world stuff. That's all the very end. So God has determined that there will be 490 years from a certain point that he is going to deal with Israel and with Jerusalem, and then the end of the world's going to come. It's interesting to us that Israel is a nation today because they weren't a nation in 1947 and they only became a nation in 1948. And in the early 1900s, there were only a few thousand Jewish people in Israel. Today, there's somewhere around six million because God said, I will bring them from the north, the south, and the east, and the west, and I will call them back to Jerusalem. And Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So Israel will be there at the end as he wraps everything up. It's important to know. So then he gives us the dates. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, so there's a command given to restore Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I'll tell you why that's broken up, but add them together, there's 69 weeks or 483 years. Are you taking notes? All right, or are you gonna come back and listen? Am I right on my math? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. For uh, 69 weeks, 483 years, the streets shall be built again and the walls even in troublesome times. So he says to them, there's going to be a command given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, the streets and the walls. 483 years later, Messiah is going to come. Messiah is going to be on the scene. Okay, that's what it's saying. All right. So Sir Robert Anderson, who was a assistant commissioner in England, to the, the Royal Police Force in England and an investigator did this work a lot of years ago. He died in 1918. And his work has stood its ground. There's just one exception that I have to his work and I'll explain that in a moment. But starting at, uh, there, there are four commands given to rebuild in Jerusalem. There's one by Cyrus. There's one by Darius. All these are in the Bible. There's one by Cyrus, one by Darius and two by Artaxerxes. The one by Cyrus, the one by Darius, and the first one by Artaxerxes, who's a Persian king. Artaxerxes Longinus is what they called him. These three are about rebuilding the temple. Go and rebuild the temple. That's the decree. This doesn't say go and rebuild the temple. It says that from the command to rebuild Jerusalem and the streets and the walls will be built in troublous times. It took him 49 years to build it all. It took him 52 days to close the walls, right? That's the book of Nehemiah but it took them 49 years to build it all. And that's why it says there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The seven weeks is 49 years that they build Jerusalem. The 62 weeks is a waiting period. Then the last command is given to Nehemiah by King Artaxerxes. And it is a command to rebuild Jerusalem. And it mentions the walls and the roads, the streets, just as this prophecy does. From the command to, be, to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, 
and the walls and the roads will be built in troublous times until Messiah will be 69 weeks. So we know, amazingly, and Sir Robert Anderson figured this out before the Dead Sea Scrolls were ever discovered, because there's no way anybody can say to you, well, this was written beforehand. Somebody tampered with these messages because they found Dead Sea Scrolls with this prophecy in it. So we know it was written beforehand. They don't have that up their sleeve. They always do. Well, it's impossible that they would have known that, so that must have been written down afterwards. They can't do that here. Sir Robert Anderson looked at Nehemiah chapter 2. That's homework for you to read this command by Artaxerxes. And he noticed that it was a date given in the month of Nisan in whatever it is, the 12th, reign of, the 12th year of Artaxerxes. There are incredible records kept for Babylonian Persian kings. We know what year they became king. So we know what the 12th year of Artaxerxes is. It's 445 BC. We know that the Hebrew month of Nisan is our March. So March of 445 BC, a command went out to restore and rebuild the Jerusalem and the, and the walls in the city. So you go 383 years from that, 69 sevens, 383 years, and you come to the early 30s in the first century. You come to the ministry of Jesus. It's an amazing prophecy. Now, you have to use a Babylonian calendar, but why would you use a Julian calendar? Why would you use our calendar today instead of the one they used when they made this prophecy? So you use a Babylonian calendar or a biblical calendar, it's called, and you come to the early part of the ministry of Jesus. By the way, if you want to use any of the four that, that I talked about, it still comes to the life of Jesus. So if you want to say from any of those commands, if you want to say, I don't think that's the command, I think this is the command. Well, you come to Jesus being alive. So from the command until Messiah, that's all it says. Now, Sir Robert Anderson came to April 6th of 32 AD. And I think that was a mistake because it gave people all of these, they could now argue over the day. Well, I don't think that's the right day. And that's what they do. When you go and research this prophecy, that's what people fight over. I don't care about the day because it doesn't say anything about a day. It doesn't say it will be 483 years until Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Sir Robert Anderson tried to bring it to a Sunday before Passover and he found it in April 6, 32 AD. He may be right, but that's not what the prophecy said. We just have to come to, to Jesus. Tell me, if we have this prophecy that tells us the Messiah is going to be there in the early 30s in the first century, who else is a candidate? What other candidate do we have? This is a Jewish prophecy. What other candidate do we have in Israel in those three years for the Messiah? It's incredible evidence for us. It's reasonable evidence for us that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Now, a couple of things quickly. It says not only that the Messiah would be there, but it tells us something that happens to the Messiah in this time frame. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Messiah, until the Messiah would be this time and then he's going to be cut off. He was crucified, but not for himself. He was crucified for the sins of mankind. And then another prince comes on the scene. And then the prince of the people who shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will be with the flood. The Bible uses the term flood for war. We see that in the next line. Until the end of the war is desolation is determined. So the Antichrist comes on the scene and he's connected to Rome because the people who destroyed the city were the Romans. So this is why we say that the Antichrist is connected to the Romans. And we have 69 weeks, the Messiah came, 
Then he was cut off and God's time clock stopped. And we had the time of the Gentiles inserted. And we still have one week left. We can't make an end of everything until there's one more seven, one more week of years, seven years. That is the tribulation period. The seven-year tribulation period spoken of in Daniel, spoken of in Revelation, broke up into two, three and a half years, the tribulation and the great tribulation. And what will happen at the end of that great tribulation in the book of Revelation? Everything will be completed, just as it promised in the beginning of this. When does that final seven week of year start? Look at verse 27. Then he, this is the Antichrist, connected to Rome, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifices and offerings. The Antichrist, and this is in Ezekiel, it's in Revelation, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel, rebuild the temple, reinstitute sacrifices for Israel. Can you imagine? They haven't had sacrifices since Rome destroyed it in 70 AD. But then in the middle of the three and a half years, the abomination of desolation takes place and he stops sacrificing and Israel knows they've been duped by this guy. By the way, the Antichrist makes a peace treaty. That's the beginning of the tribulation period. A peace treaty in the Middle East, we know from other passages, there's a peace treaty signed in the Middle East this week. And my wife said to me, we were talking about this passage. She said, is it possible? I said, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But um, he'll bring it into sacrifices. Now, one more thing. We know that this abomination of desolation is in the future. And we know that the abomination of desolation was not when Rome took uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the city. That's what preterists say. Do you guys know what preterism is? Just a show of hands. How many of you guys know what preterism is? This is why I don't cover this stuff. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago, why don't you ever cover preterism? Because nobody knows or cares. <laughs> preterism says all of Revelation was fulfilled in the Romans destroying Jerusalem. That Revelation is about the destruction of Jerusalem. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a clue here. Rome was destroyed in 70 A.D. Revelation was written in 90 A.D. It doesn't work. Okay? That's one of the reasons I reject preterism. Let me give you the other reason I reject it. In Matthew 24, Jesus says this, for there will be a great tribulation. He's talking about the seven-year period, the, the last week of Daniel, the 70th week of Daniel. And there shall be a great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. All of the horrors that have taken place in the past, we could go from the time of Jesus backwards. There were great slaughters of people by, by different kings. Attila the Hun, we could go back and just look at these guys that did awful things. Something worse than that is going to happen. And so Jesus says, and in that time there will be great tribulations such as the world has never seen since the beginning of time, nor shall ever be. So we think of all of the horrible things that have happened until now. We think of Karl Marx and his slaughter. We think of Stalin and his slaughter. We think of Hitler and his slaughters. Hundreds of millions of people starved and tormented and murdered by these people. And it's not as bad as that. So don't tell me that it's Rome destroying Israel because we've had a lot worse things happen than what Rome did to Israel is horrible, but it's not as bad as some of these things that we've seen. We can just cite the Holocaust for that. When our soldiers delivered the Holocaust, some of them took the um, German soldiers out and murdered them. You can't conquer, you know, a people. You can't win in a war. And when you walk in and see the conditions of the concentration camps, grab soldiers, drag them outside and shoot them. They went from war to murder because they saw how horrible it was. 
the tribulation will be worse than all of that. We know what is still to come. Antichaeus Epiphanes, if you know who that is, fulfilled it partially. It's a partial fulfillment of prophecy, but the complete fulfillment comes in the Antichrist, in that last seven weeks when everything will be confirmed. We'll cover this again in another time, but right now, let's pray. Father, you stand with me, would you? And let's pray. That may be the fastest I've ever covered that much information in one Bible study. Father, we're so thankful for your word. It really is rich and it helps us to understand exactly what's going on. We thank you that we are given this amazing prophecy that gives us above reasonable doubt that from a particular point, which we know when it happened, until the Messiah came, that it was exactly what it said. And there was no way that Gabriel or Daniel could have known when they said that. Gabriel maybe, but Daniel couldn't have. He couldn't have known when the Messiah was going to come. And we know these things were written before. So we thank you for this word and we pray that it would encourage us in our faith that we believe the truth. I also pray for those here who have never made a commitment to you, that you would give them the boldness to take the next step. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed for just a few minutes. We're almost done. But if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, you have to deliberately invite him in. You don't become a Christian by osmosis. You don't become a Christian because you're religious, because you grew up in a religious home. You have to come to the point where you say, I want him. There are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. You have to receive the Messiah. You have to invite him in. And he said he's knocking at the heart of your door. And if you will hear him knocking, he's the one who initiates salvation. You hear him knocking, you open the door and he'll come in. And he'll dine with you. He'll fellowship with you. In a moment, I want to give you a chance to do that. Or if you're here today and you made a commitment to Christ, maybe years ago, maybe a few weeks ago even, but you didn't follow through. And that happens a lot of times to people. Sometimes they make a commitment, then they got to kind of restart it again. And, and for whatever reason, maybe it was a long time ago when you chose sin. Maybe your commitment for Christ was choked out by cares and worries for this world, whatever it may be. But you are no longer following him. You are a prodigal. You're a lost sheep. And Jesus loves lost sheep and he loves prodigals. And he said, I'll go, I'll leave the 99, I'll go after the one. And you have an opportunity today to come back to your Savior, to make a recommitment now with a greater understanding of what is expected of you. Live your life for him as that living sacrifice. So if you're here today and you want to give your life to Christ for the very first time, or you would like to recommit your life to Christ, and if you're watching live on our online campus or you're listening on Reach Radio, you can respond as well. I would like you to simply raise your hand. I would like to acknowledge your hand and pray for you. God bless you, sir. Off to my left and you, sir, as well, right under the balcony. That's great. I want to pray for you as you commit and surrender your life to him. God bless you. All the way over to the right, up in the balconies. God bless you. Out in the pavilion, anybody? All right, scan in the room one more time. If I miss your hand, by the way, God sees it. All right, you could put your hands down. And those of you that are watching on our live online campus, if you made a commitment to Christ, you prayed this prayer. I would like everybody here to pray this prayer, including those who raise their hands. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I have sinned. And I know my sin has separated me from you. But I also understand that I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. So I invite you into my life and I turn from my sins 
that I can live for you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Welcome to the family of God. How exciting. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.